Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I got to admit to you that our gospel reading for today, it destroyed me this past week. It continues to, and it will probably for a long time. And when I say destroyed me, I mean that in a good way, that it's been reaching deep into many parts of my mind, my heart, my life, and exposing things in me, convicting things in me, indicting and accusing and informing and expanding my heart and my mind. And at the same time, guiding, comforting, coming alongside of me, healing me, and giving me hope. And I love it when the Word of God does that. So I hope this text from Mark chapter 8 will sit with you far beyond our time together today. Now, something happened when I preached in Walker Hall last week. You see, I wrote my sermon for last week while at the same time writing two other sermons that I recorded on Monday and Tuesday, midweek Latin sermons that go online in a few weeks. So I got to admit that I wasn't really even thinking of our gospel reading for today as I prepared last week's sermon. But as I preached Mark chapter 1 last week, the baptism and temptation of Jesus, I was struck by what a friend of mine, Leo Sanchez, calls the active Jesus and the passive Jesus. And last week I quoted part of our gospel reading for today because the two went together so well. This active, this passive distinction. You see, last week in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus baptized by John, descended on by the Spirit, possessed by the Spirit, you might say, spoken to by the Father, thrown out into the desert by the Spirit, tempted by Satan, maybe even assaulted by animals and attended to by angels. It's the passive Jesus. Last week I talked about how we don't usually like the passive Jesus. We like the active one. And we see that with Peter in our gospel reading today in Mark chapter 8. We see it in our depictions of Jesus, like this one, Buddy Jesus. He's active, he's engaging, he's outgoing, he's your friend, and he's cool, and he's fun. Last week I showed this picture too. This is the outdoorsman Jesus. He's tan, he's rugged, he's active, he's a longboard surfer for sure. Then there's the tough buff Jesus. I didn't even want to show that one from last week, but there's this one, most telling of all. In fact, my friend Todd Lucero picked it up for me at the Orange Lutheran thrift shop, all right? I shared people with this. This is the action figure buff CrossFit G.I. Joe Jesus. We like this kind of Jesus, the active Jesus, the action-oriented Jesus. But in Mark chapter 1, last week in that first part, he was quite passive. And it can make us uncomfortable. Just like it made Peter uncomfortable in our gospel reading today in Mark chapter 8. But before we get there, Peter may have had some precedent to wonder a little bit about this passive Jesus. Because you see, after that little first part in Mark chapter 1 with the baptism and temptation of Jesus, Jesus gets quite active, demonstrating his power. In fact, for eight chapters, Jesus is doing some active things. 
Jesus preaches the good news. Jesus calls his first disciples. Jesus drives out an impure spirit. Jesus heals many people, including someone with leprosy, a mute person, a deaf person, a blind person. He heals a paralyzed man and forgives his sins. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Jesus theologically spars with the Pharisees. He heals on the Sabbath. He leads crowds of people, healing them, teaching them, preaching powerful parables that rock the minds of the Jewish people. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. Jesus raises a girl from the dead at the same time healing a woman. Jesus sends out his disciples. He feeds 5,000 and then he feeds 4,000. He walks on water. He honors the faith of a Gentile. He calls out the Pharisees and Herod and so much more. That's a whole lot of active Jesus. And I'd say power. Good power. Jesus using power to serve and transform people's lives, not using power to dominate or exploit. And it's after all this activity, using power for good, that Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who do people say I am? It's an interesting question for Jesus to ask. You see, when we ask that sort of question, it usually revolves around some sort of identity crisis question or curiosity we might have. How are other people perceiving me? Whether it's a high school kid who has a crush on someone, or you're interviewing for a job, or you're starting a new job, or you're trying to figure out a new peer group at school or at the workplace or in your neighborhood, or you're a new step-parent or a new step-child, or you're a politician trying to figure out how you're perceived in the polls. Who do people say I am? What do they think of me? How do they perceive me? We ask these questions wrestling with identity, whether from insecurity, curiosity, the desire to succeed or change public opinion. But why does Jesus ask this question? Is Jesus worried about what other people think of him? Does he have a lot of insecurities in placing his identity in other people's perception of him? Is he trying to find out how he is doing in the polls? Well, apparently, he's doing pretty well in the polls. I mean, he's got some street cred. The people think he is at least some kind of prophet. Some even think that he is John the Baptist or Elijah coming back to them. So at the very least, they think that Jesus is sent by God. But what happens next? We see what Jesus is really concerned about with his question because he narrows the question down. He focuses on his disciples. He focuses on his followers, and he asks them, Verse 29, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, so far, they've only called him teacher or rabbi. But they have asked this question themselves in the Gospel of Mark when he stilled the storm and they said to each other, Mark 4, 41, they said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus isn't asking them this question because he doesn't know who he is or because his identity is insecure. He asks them this question because he is more than a prophet. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. And their answer to his question has everything to do with their identity, their eternity, their destiny, their reality as his disciples. 
And so Peter answered in Mark 8, 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. The one whom the people of Israel had been longing for and waiting for to deliver them. Jesus cared about what his disciples believed about him, not because of his identity, but for the sake of their identity, for their lives. And while they take this next step and they acknowledge, yes, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, their ideas about what that actually means are skewed. Their ideas about it are off. They're only just beginning to take shape and form. Because what Jesus is going to do is going to rock their world and in turn all humanity. So he's got to teach them. Verse 31, that's what he does. He does. He says he began to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, by the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Whoa, hold on, Jesus. That's a little bit too much to give up for Lent. How about just giving up some chocolate or some caffeine? Maybe some social media, something a little less invasive, Jesus. Suffer? Be killed? Rejected? Don't get so intense. And this is where we see the passive Jesus from the beginning of the gospel come to the fore again. This is when we see him begin to set aside his power in an intentional way and embrace suffering. We see him set his gaze more directly toward Jerusalem, more directly toward the cross. But Peter couldn't hang with that sort of Jesus. So much so that Peter pulls Jesus aside. I mean, it's pretty audacious, right? Peter just called Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. He's like, Jesus, come on over here. I'm going to do you a, a favor. I'm not going to embarrass you in front of all your disciples. He takes him away privately, and he rebukes Jesus. That's when it hit me hard. So many times I've built up Jesus to be and to do and to act the way I want him to, the way I think is right. And so many times I want the benefits for me in all the self-centered ways. So many times in life, we are drawn to the active Jesus, not this passive one. We want the powerful Jesus, not this weak one. We want the heavenly kingdom, not this way to the cross. In the 1400s, Thomas Akempis wrote powerful words about this very thing, about our struggle with the Christ of the cross and apparent weakness. He said these words. He says, Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as the drinking the cup of suffering. Many that revere his morality, few that follow him in the indignity of his cross. Many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them. Many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or becoming deeply depressed. 
those who love Jesus for his own sake, not for the sake of their own comfort, bless him in time of trouble and heartache as much as when they are full of consolation. When I read those words, I was cut to the heart. Because all too often I want Jesus my way, the heavenly kingdom way, the active way, the powerful way, just like Peter. Peter is confused by this apparently weak way of the cross, Jesus, this new new teaching from Jesus. He wants the Jesus of power, the Jesus of kingdom, the Jesus of comfort, the Jesus of banquet, the Jesus of rejoicing. Peter wants his Jesus. He wants his candidate. He wants his party to take control of the executive, legislative, and judicial branches and rip away the power from those corrupt Romans and Jews. Peter thinks that if it happens, well, then life will be truly good. He and the Jewish people will get their their world back, their lives back. They will find true peace and contentment. So he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Jesus calls him on it. In fact, Jesus calls him on it in such a hard way, and it's hard to hear Jesus talking to Peter that way, so harsh. But we've got to realize why. That he's doing it because Peter is calling into question the entire work of God in Jesus Christ. He's challenging the very work of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of all humanity, including Peter. And my friends, that's where we see the completely otherworldly, radical love that Jesus Christ has for us. That he puts aside his power. And you keep reading the gospel, I encourage you to do it. You keep reading the gospel and you see Jesus talk more about this suffering and about this passion. Two more times he talks about it, then he starts to live it more as he comes as a king on a donkey, not on a war horse. His authority is questioned, then he's anointed with perfume for his burial, then his betrayer schemes and leaves the Passover meal. He's left alone in Gethsemane, he's overwhelmed, betrayed by Judas, arrested by religious leaders, deserted by disciples, falsely accused in court, then he's spit upon blindfolded, struck, beaten, horrifically denied by Peter once, twice, three times. He's mocked, insulted, gambled over, forsaken by the Heavenly Father, pierced by spear, nails, and thorns, crucified for the sins of the world. Oh, what radical love our love is. Our song is love unknown. He did all that for Peter. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for all humanity. And that's why Jesus was so harsh with Peter. Get behind me, Peter. Don't block my way to the cross. I'm the only one who can do this. I'm going there for you, Peter. I'm going there for you. 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 When we look at it that way, we see the way of the cross and we're humbled and we're brought to our knees at how much he loves us. And it's why we sing, oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? And we remember what he said. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed. 
and after three days rise again. Passive Jesus becomes active. Weak Jesus becomes strong. The way of the cross yields to the heavenly kingdom. Power and glory. He rose again. He rises again. And we will too. And on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, we hear his words in a fresh way. A new way. That perhaps the way of apparent Weakness, the way of the cross, is the path to glory and honor and power and life and our true identity, our true selves. And that way guides the shape of our lives as disciples here and now. And we hear those words of discipleship. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? On the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, we hear those words and we're free. We're free to live, to really live, to love others sacrificially, selflessly, generously, just as he loved us. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. My life, my song, my Lord, my identity, my all. Lord, take my hand and lead me upon life's way. Amen? Amen. Amen.